Welcome to Dungeons and Brews, everyone. Your bards of creation return to weave you new tales, craft you an item worth your weight in gold, don't hold us accountable if the failure of the item, and discuss all things D&D. I'm Mo. And I'm Austin. And we talk rule of cool versus the rule lawyer in today's episode of Dungeons and Brews. actually have our brew should be the next topic of discussion uh, mo why don't you tell us a little bit about the brew for this episode say hello to the people first though brewmaster austin i get a little bit excited when we're drinking alcohol that's a problem for me it's just you know i love the brews but as always i am austin i am your co-host with the wonderful mo uh, and this is our second episode of dungeons and brews we're excited here guys so our First, we'll jump right into the main thing so far here. Uh, today, we are currently going to be partaking in Dark Horse Raspberry Ale. So uh, it's a nice uh, fruited wheat ale, raspberry style, obviously. So easy, buddy. You want you want to go ahead and do the honor? Ready? Three, two, one. Oh, that's beautiful. That's All crispy. Right. Ooh, so nice, too. Oh, that is fantastic. That is delicious. That's good. That oh, is wow. really good. Wow, that it's is like... Ale, but it's really good. It's not yeah. sweet, though. It's like flavorful without being sweet. Very close to a mead, I would say. Like, it's yeah. similar. Not so, necessarily yeah, the same. Kinda, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of meads, I know that you are a Ren Faire lover, and Michigan Ren Faire is coming up. It is coming up. I think it's coming up here in just a, a couple of weeks. I'm uh, pretty excited for it. I'm uh, geeked. I've been looking at medieval costumes to possibly mm. wear, so... Uh, Speaking of which, do we want to go? Do you want to go? I think we should. I think we should. And I have already kind of talked with it about one of my campaigns. Like a couple of players are interested in going. We just did a dress up um, session for a boss battle that I did this past weekend. Um, and that boss battle. You just battle, posted it to your Instagram. As I, well. We did. Yeah, it, it has really been, yeah, it has yeah. been posted. Um, and, you know, we had people, we had one guy paint himself all blue. He's a lizard folk barbarian. You know, we had someone who is um, a, a tiefling that also uh, got infected with were-tiger. So she did like a tiefling were-tiger sort of thing. We had a fairy warlock. Did, Her did makeup whole, was oh, on, on like, point. Like really, like everyone, everyone really knocked it out. Like, I have an elven artificer who crushed it. Uh, my girlfriend also plays in the campaign and she is a fire genasi wizard. And she who likes to cast fireball. Who's yeah. shocked by that? Mm. Wait. Waiting, behold my garden, see how it is barren. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really great. And I think Mew and I should go. But the question becomes, what should we dress as? We got to go as paladins, Austin. I would love that. I will smite the heretics from the earth. Okay, so that's that's a little bit more like, you know, Oathkeeper. I mean, what is it called? Oathkeeper, right? Oathbreaker? Oathbreaker. Thank well, Oathbreaker, you. My yeah, if my, my oath is to smite the heretics from the earth, it would be breaking my oath to not smite them from the earth. Who would be your god then? Who would be your deity? Mm, it had to be somebody like probably, I'd probably imagine that as like an orc paladin to mm. like Grunch or something. Grush? Grush? Is that Gr- uh, Grunch. 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 Yeah, Grunch. He's the. He's got one eye. Yeah, and he's <laughs> just a pissed off ball of rage. So I think that would probably be the most fitting, I think. For that sort of character Grimshaw's works yeah. i was also thinking maybe if we wanted to i mean let's let's face it renegades for life my friend mm. evil wizards mm. maybe maybe you be an evil wizard since you're the brains of this operation uh and i Yay. can be i can be your wonderful bard squire oh <laughs> oh god i can just see it now just walking around with the loot in your hand <laughs> yeah basically like chris pines character from the D movie just mr time. wizard mr wizard hello there <laughs> Oh, I have yeah. brought you a refreshment. Would you like a would you like a fantastic ale? Have you had a mead before actually? Oh yeah, I actually have. So one of our friends in college, his uh friend that lived in the same area that I went to, um, actually made his own mead. Uh mm. made a honey mead. And it was delicious. It was Although so good. Extremely high in alcohol, I'm yes. sure. Yeah. yeah, like twenty percent. It was <laughs> it was stout, but it was very good. To you listening, because I know you're listening, you remember what meat it is. It's delicious. He was pointing at the screen, everyone. I just want you to imagine your brewmaster, Austin, just pointing at the screen, saying, you remember. Awesome. 
incredible. I love it. I'm thinking we should definitely dress up though for it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely dress up. Cloaks and things like that would always be like, I, I know they're very high, mm-hmm. highly. Uh, did you pick up your uh, things? I know you had, uh, for instance, in your D&D posting picture, you have the uh, half skirt. Am I correct? Right. So I... I was a half skirt looking thing. It looked fantastic. So I had... So the shirt that I got... We'll post it to our D&D, which by the way, if you guys are our D&D Instagram page, if you guys aren't following us yet, make sure to go check us out. Dungeons underscore and underscore brews. Come check us out. Give us a follow. We would always love to have more people following us and telling us what a colossal failure we are. And giving us ideas on content if you so choose. Very We're always so. open to it. But yeah, the, saying, the shirt yeah. and the... The pants that I got were from actually just Amazon. Um, you were able to just look up if you look up like fantasy medieval, you kind of pull it up. They were like twenty bucks a piece. Really, it was really cheap. You know, for your kind of intro to cosplay because I never really cosplayed all that much. So intro. To you co- did do some cosplaying though. I, the sound of it. Yeah, some, some, but like not, not a lot. Um, so it never to the point where I had to buy. You know, it was usually like uh, it was like a pre-made thing where you like are you can buy the costume. You know, it's a popular character. You know all that. So I never really had to combine things in my own way. So this is the first time I really got that, but it was only like $20 a piece for like the pants shirt. And you could do that with just some like black shoes and you're like easily a pirate, easily a Viking, easily, you know, easily anything, you know, really with that. Um, the jacket, the coat that I had was also off of Amazon, but that was a little bit more. It was like, I think 30 or 40 bucks, but I mean, you really can do it on a budget and there are a lot of great sites, um, especially if people are in, the TikTok D&D community, the Instagram D&D community, those sites get passed around that have like official tunics and things where you can spend, you know, $100, $200 and you get something that looks really good. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I'm very interested about picking up something like that myself. Like I, I keep looking at specifically, so I'm a personal trainer, as you well know, and I always... Uh, do, uh, listen, guys, I'm not saying I skip leg day, all right? I'm just saying I don't do as much leg day as I should. I like upper body, all right? So, but I am thinking about getting one of the cutoff, like, tunics and things like that that kind of have, like, the sleeves cut off mm-hmm. or, like, the more knight-based where it's kind of that chain mail. Mm-hmm. But, again, it's got the sleeves cut off. Mm-hmm. Either way, I want the sleeves cut off. So, what I'm trying to say is I want to show my arms and just walk around the entire time with, like, a you badass could be a muscle bastard wizard. sword. It would just be great. Muscle wizard. Muscle Wizard cast fist. That's yeah. the second episode so far, and I thought I brought it up. Yeah, Muscle Wizard cast <laughs> yeah, fist. It's fantastic. But I, yeah, I think definitely, maybe we could put a poll out on the Instagram and see what some thoughts are. Yeah. Well, I think we'll definitely uh, toss out a poll. Let us know what you guys think, uh, uh, what we should dress up as. If you guys have any ideas, send us your ideas on the poll again. Be available right after this uh, posting. So come check us out, guys. Um, I think, though. Brewmaster Austin, again, uh, to be form and correct. I think let's talk about the age-old debate, right? The uh, rule of cool oh, versus I was, the rule I of I was going to go Powerade or Gatorade, but yes, the age-old debate of D&D. Oh, it's yeah. definitely Powerade. No, it's definitely Gatorade. Mm, Gatorade. H2O. Gatorade. Yeah, it's power. Different Gatorade. Uh, but anyway, you were talking about a different age-old debate. Yeah. <laughs> the most classic one uh, for, that, for us to always conquer within the D&D community what is better? Is it the rule of cool? Is it the, uh, being a rule lawyer? Sticking by the book. Let's, first of all, break down each one. The rule of cool starts first, if you don't mind. Oh, well, thank you so much, good sir. He pointed his hand at me. Again, they can't see this, Austin. So I don't have to use my words all the time, Mo. <laughs> On a podcast, you do. No, but sometimes I can just point. Perfect. So the rule of cool, what is it? Why do people use it and its importance within the culture? The rule of cool, letting something happen at the table naturally, right? If maybe it doesn't fit within the rules established within the D&D, especially D&D 5e. For instance, okay, I used, uh, I'll just use a great, great example, guidance. It's a minute spell. Technically, it is only a minute spell, right? Casting guidance, right? Can I let them use it a little bit longer after the minute is up? Because again, it's a minute. It would go by very quickly. Can I use it a little bit later? I have always a great example of this within uh, NADPOD, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime that I believe uh, Caldwell, uh, not Caldwell, excuse me, it was Jake, mm-hmm. when rolling with his uh, wizard to try and make a wisdom save, mm-hmm. Emily Axford would cast that lovely uh, guidance spell, and it would work. But mm-hmm. it, it fits because it can make that difference. Mm-hmm. The cool factor of like, oh, no. I failed the wisdom check. I failed the wisdom check. Oh no. Oh wait, I can add my D4, but you need to get up two or more. So you roll that dice and all of a sudden you just hear it. 
it is. You roll that two, you roll that three, it pushes you over the threshold. It's so, such a satisfying feeling at the same time. Does it fit the rules technically? No, it does not. It doesn't. And I actually have a great example of this from, I know I keep referencing it, but this last weekend that I ran a boss battle for one of my campaigns, I had someone ask me, out of session before we got there, if they could cast Expeditious Retreat on someone else, which is, it's technically a self-spell. It's kind of similar to Mage Armor. So for those uh, newer players that maybe don't know, uh, sell, every spell has a range. And it'll tell you what area it either affects, how long you can cast it away, the time it lasts, all of those sorts of things are told to you, whether you're using D&D Beyond, looking in a player's handbook, anything like that, looking up online. But self-spells can only affect the person that is actually casting the spell. However, my rule of cool kind of ruling on it was, why don't you roll an Arcana check, and if you beat a certain level, uh, whatever the DC I said, I think I said 18, I said it pretty high, um, I'll let you cast it on someone else. They rolled in front of the table, they hit the DC, I let them cast it on someone else because it makes it narratively satisfying. And I think that's what the rule of cool is all about, is trying to make it narratively satisfying. Which is, it, it can be tough at a D&D uh, table, trying to make it fit within your world, but without necessarily breaking your world. You sit there and you say, okay, well, uh, exp- for instance, again, Expeditious Retreat, fantastic spell. Let's use that as a bonus action on each of your turns until the spell ends. You can use the dash action. It's a, it's a great and fantastic spell. At the same time, does it fit? Can you break a game? Yeah, you can. But that's when the other side of the coin comes into play, Austin. Yeah. If you want to talk about the rule of rule lawyering. Yeah, rules lawyering. So it's kind of, again, why I pointed at Mo, and I know I got a little bit of a chastise for not using my words, but the reason I pointed at him the rule of cool is I am actually an attorney by trade. Uh, So rules lawyering kind of comes natural to me. Uh, Rules lawyering is essentially... It's if it's not you guys within... should see his face as he's saying this. By the way, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's essentially if it doesn't fit the rule, it's a no. You have to use the mechanics of the game to solve your problems, and it's a. In my experience, it's more about what you can actually do in the book as opposed to what your creativity allows. It's a little bit more rigid. It's a little less for the uh, more creative you know, type B like mine. It's a little more type A. And I've run campaigns where I'm very rules lawyering. I've run campaigns where I'm rule of cool. I've played in them where DMs are both. So you've gone back and forth with them. I think in my naivety as a younger DM, I only did rules lawyering. I was very much- Because you're very old right now. You're a very old DM. Your gray hair is showing. Dare I say, your D20s are dropping. My D20s are dropping. (laughs) Very low. Very low. Um, but yeah, I think we just aged ourselves a little bit. A little bit. As men here, we basically just said what's happening to our bodies. So. <laughs> but I, I, I definitely started out. I think more rules lawyery because I didn't have a basis to do anything else. I was like, I'm trying to learn the game. I'm trying to do all this stuff. I'm trying to do this. No, you can't use prestidigitation to to do that. No, it's just not what prestidigitation. You know, whatever it is, especially with some of those spells like prestidigitation like you know manifest object you know different things that can that have very open definitions can be a problem for rules lawyers oh yeah it, it's it's something that i i know at the table when i first started dming myself and per, personally i i was a rule lawyer i would i was like no i can't do it I, you'll this one will blow your mind i didn't homebrew when i first started dming i was terrified about that homebrewing. actually shocks me but i just i was so uncomfortable with it i had an idea of what i wanted to do for instance now in my world uh big shout out to the final fantasy 14 uh compendium of red mage red mage is a very unique class within final fantasy that uses both dark spells and light spells i think what was so cool about is i got comfortable when i started incorporating i started creating my own homebrew items now i homebrew all the time i can't imagine living my life without homebrewing But again, if you go by the rule lawyering type of thing, not really technically a good thing. It's not supposed to happen there, lots and lots I want to, I think, push back just a little bit on it because I think that there's an often a misconception with rules lawyering that you don't homebrew. 
And that's not necessarily, in my experience, the case. I think the the rules learning, you can still homebrew. But when you homebrew, it's very much more mechanical in it. You're still sticking to the DMG, the player's handbook. You're sticking to the basis for the mechanics of the game. You're just changing the setting. You're, you know, you're reflavoring things. You're doing that. To fit so, in your world. Right, to fit in your world. So I think I think the main thing to think about rules lawyering is is like think about rules lawyering as the army it's very regimented everyone does their bed the same way they wear the same uniform they walk in time together there's a way you clean your gun everything is regimented right and you follow the rules or there's a punishment for it right like or you can't do that right yeah rule of cool is much more like a militia where it's a little bit more ragtag it's a little bit more, you know. I think what disturbs me the most about this entire topic, everything you just said made so much sense to me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I think he just figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> if you could win the conversation, I think he win. <laughs> he won the conversation. It's my job to win conversations, all right? He's a lawyer, everyone. That's the main thing for me is that you can homebrew as a rules lawyer, but the flexibility in game at least in my experience is a little less have you ever had like a specific instance where you had a debate in your brain yeah about I've what actually, to do I've, I've had a few i've had a few and one the one that comes to mind and i know she's listening because she is my mo one of my if not my most chaotic player that i have in my longtime veteran campaign i created a spell um in my first it was my first campaign ever i created a spell because my big qualm with D, especially with casting there's not enough transportation spells. Is that you have you basically wait a long time and you get teleport and that's basically it. Basically, you get teleport, uh, you get misty step and plane and, shift and like yeah, and plane like shift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really like, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, there's there is a couple, right? Yeah, there's a couple. You get uh, long what's, strider. Yep, you but, get long strider. You get some type of movement spells. You also get the uh, oh man, what was it? A point of return, uh, the return spell that mm -hmm. the clerics get access right, to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's there's yeah. not enough like to solve transportation issues. So I, the campaign that I created, this was the first one. It was a, it was a big heaping mess of a lot of different ideas, but it was a lot of island hopping um, between it. Like a lot of the main areas were separated by islands. So I created a spell to let this person create basically a flame boat, like a boat that would. You've told me about this before. Right. I remember this conversation right. about the flame and boat. So, yes. Yeah. And so the what I didn't do in creating the spell was specifically mentioned that the boat had to be manifested in a liquid surface so this player dropped a boat from because it had a range of 60 feet dropped a boat on an enemy on an enemy that is that is absolutely amazing but see that's where the rule of cool, cool comes, comes in. into play and so eventually yeah. i did i did allow it but i had a very strict debate in my mind because my idea as the rules lawyer for making this spell was not to be have it be a combat spell it did do damage if people who you didn't designate got on it i can share the spells on dnd beyond actually if people want to look it up dnd beyond it's called fireboat but um literally, wow yeah. It's just a fifth level, so evo creative fifth on level spell. evocation spell. Just fire. Fantastic. Fire I've, I've created a, a couple of spells. Yeah. I've, uh, for instance, I, uh, if you remember, I did find some uh, spells off of 3.5 that mm -hmm. I actually uh, copied into D&D uh, &D Beyond. Yep. Uh, there was a couple of spells that I also, my friend, have, uh, and we reflavored. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't just strictly decide to create, okay, for instance, he's a, he's a Kalishtar. If you're familiar with Kalishtar, they tend to be more like Dream Realm-y type of uh, creatures within uh, Forgotten Realms. I they bullshit. It's not Fey. It's the Dream Realm. It is different. No, it is not bullshit. <laughs> Your Fey bullshit. Uh, doesn't make sense. But uh, what we did is we created a spell for him in which it allowed him to uh, change his fireball from fire damage to psychic damage, mm -hmm. right? We also did one where he can cast Mage Armor as a reaction mm -hmm. towards a certain thing. Mage Armor with a... Uh, I mean, the best way to do it is almost like a backlash of psychic uh, resonance, right? When you uh, you shoot out, like imagine like I, I always like to imagine Jean Grey, like from the X Men series. Ooh, that's a good reference. Right, yeah. you're, you're welcome. Yeah, right, that was right reference. off the top of the head. That wasn't even practiced, y'all. But it was. It's just like a psychic backlash that kind of uh, resonates out from him, and it works really well. And that's where spells like that kind of. I think they, they just enhance a character. When you start listening to your players and they start telling you what they want and you find ways to go, hey, let's make this happen. That sounds cool. 
that's a combination of not just you being a rules lawyer, but, you know, wanting to find a spell that isn't mind-breaking or trying to break the spell. Psychic Bolt also. It was called Psychic Bolt. We, did, we didn't do it with Fireball. We did with we did with Lightning Bolt, but we removed the Lightning Damage and made it a Psychic Bolt. And it has a five-foot kind of reaction on the outsides of it where it causes a little extra damage. It was great. But it was also you trying to be a... Uh, Rule of cool. You want to satisfy the player because, mm -hmm. oh my God, does it fit so narratively well into the story. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're like, okay, I can't break the game. I have to make sure to end up at both. And I feel like it shouldn't be a debate, right? It shouldn't be right. rule of cool versus the rule of lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. Because you want to do both. Right. In a game of a good setting where you're just like, I'm about this life. Let's go, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just pick one. Right. You really can't. If you go rule of cool, you're going to have the chaotic, most chaotic campaign that you've ever seen in your life. Mm. Your players, you will never have a satisfying uh, combat encounter. You won't. Yeah. But if you go rule of uh, rule lawyering to the most extreme degree, right, it's going to be miserable. It's like with anything in in life. There's always something to be learned by the opposite opinion. There's always something like there. There really is. You can whether it's reinforcement for your own belief or whatever. And I think that is what I've kind of learned through just running so many campaigns over the last three years is that, you know, I started out very rules lawyery. Then I kind of switched, switched over to rule of cool, like to too much extent. And now you kind of find a mid ground. And that's what I encourage all of you to do, whether you're a new DM, old DM, um, even as a player, like understand that there is always a debate in the DM's mind to allow certain things because remember you as a player and i think i struggle this with this a lot when i play is i'm thinking of things very in the moment i'm thinking in this combat in this situation in this whereas your dm is thinking about if i allow them to use this spell in this way i now have an issue for my entire campaign they will do it again and, and again, again and again and again and even if you and don't again. intend to mm -hmm. as a player the dm is thinking about it so always just with that be understanding but if you know that you have something that you really want for your character just talk to your dm outside of the session yeah because then i find it's a little easier for me to work through it and not have the in the moment like being sprung upon like <gasps> you mean the dm sweats oh i love yeah, the dm, the DM sweats, sweats. Yeah. oh my god the dm sweats let me tell you all i have sat there on that other side i am telling you what saves a dm's life and i mean it with all due sincerity is that damn screen. That screen is our barrier against the entire world. So interestingly enough, I DM with no screen. You, that is blasphemy. No screen. How dare you? Because- Get out. Here, and here's my, here's my reasoning for it. Here's my reasoning for it. Is that, especially with newer players, I like the tension that builds when they can see every single role that I do. Yeah, but it takes away from that. I have not found that. I have not. I, I have think not it does. That. I think for it veterans, takes away. Yes. Veterans, I would say yes. But when you got a new. No, you don't trust veterans. Veteran players, you don't trust them. No. They will find a way to fuck it up. They yeah. will fuck. I'm sorry. This is an explicit plot podcast. Guess, yeah. They will fuck up your campaign just yeah. for shits and, and giggles, y'all. So, and they know as soon as you start picking up dice that they're doing something. And they are instantly become more cautious. Mm -hmm. Whereas with mm -hmm. my newer players, I can roll in front of them and they will keep doing the action, right? They'll keep doing it. So uh, I know this is a little bit off the topic of rules lawyering, but I don't use a DM screen. I don't use a DM screen for that reason because I also love the idea of when someone asks a check that they're like, hey, can I like look for something that I wasn't plan planning on them doing, right? I will take the die, roll in front of them and be like, that's the DC you have to beat. And they know, they know that's that a good I'm, idea because it sets, it's like, Hey, look, I didn't know that was going to happen. Like, I didn't know that, you know, my fairy warlock wanted to like sneak everybody into their genie vessel. That's a nipple ring. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, like, and you have checks for all these things. And instead of me being like, the rules, you do this. I was like, roll, I beat my role, like whatever it is. And you know, okay. Uh, you know, I rolled the three. Well, you've got really easy time to beat that you know and so the dice decide those random things for me so that's where i go very rule of cool but at the same time i still have like limits like i'm not gonna let it be so outside of the rule that it's no longer D. &D. and I, I'm, I'm with you I, I i get i get what you're saying i think i will admit the, the dm sweats have gotten me once or twice right 
there's been times players have said things. I'm like, oh, I sure. And then there's that entire part of your brain that does do exactly what you're talking about, where it goes into that, oh my God, they're going to do this again. I'm going to have to get rid of that entire trap. I spent a solid, your own biasness comes out in your playing. And mm-hmm. you, I think what players tend to forget occasionally is the DM also wants to have fun. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important for us to do both as DMs. Yeah. We have to be able to and, be able to go both. And I think something... DMs, GMs, whatever you want to call yourself. Yeah, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, I just want to be clear. Especially yeah. if you're in Pathfinder or whatever. I know they, they use it. But I think the big thing to kind of like kind of put a nice little bow on the conversation about, um, you know, rule of cool versus rules lawyering and all that is that when you, as a DM, when you do rule of cool, you lend yourself more to whatever the players are doing as the narrative and in my experience when you do rules lawyering you do whatever you have pre-written is a little bit more usually typically when i use the rules lawyering is like i I have a narrative i kind of want to push that's not okay and i think finding the balance between being adverse to your players and cooperative to your players is something that only you can find at your individual table but that's why you need both is that you Knowing can't be fully adverse because that creates a hostile table mm-hmm. and it's not super fun to deal with no you want you want both at the table and then if you go too far the other way it's too amenable and you're not having fun the players are dictating everything which you know again in a tabletop the players do dictate a lot but you still have to be kind of the hand that guides. So I think that's the best way to put it is that rules lawyering can kind of lead you into a little bit too much of your own narrative and too much rule of, uh, rule of cool can lead you too much to player control. And you got to find the mid ground that the works mid-ground. for you. Yep. I'm a hundred percent with you. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I cannot stress that enough how important that is and how like DMS we have got to stop doing certain stuff we can't help ourselves we're humans we're creatures right we we have those certain habits we have our certain fallback mechanics and sometimes your fallback mechanic is nope 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 i gotta go back to my paper that's why your own dming style is important we talked about this in the last episode where we did mention how how is your dming style and how does it come out so on that point my lovely co-host uh dare i say it's dice battle time dice battle dice battle all right ready show me what you got uh, 13. You've got to stop rolling double digits because <gasps> 16. Yes. Woo, it's one to one. And if you, for those of you keeping track at home, it is currently one episode to one episode on the dice battle. And I will vanquish him. <laughs> no, me mortal. But as we kind of finish up that topic, why don't we hop over into back into our world creation segment. Let's talk world creation indeed. Did I hear co-host voice coming out? Consider it done. Everyone's favorite game show where you turn your brain into mind player mush and let your two charismatic, charming voices with the choices, DMs, design a world with a little input from you. And so last time, if you guys remember from episode one, we were talking about Vanala, our little town that we had. And I did realize the I most didn't, basic of names. I really know. didn't give everyone a lot of context for what the DMG does. And I think this kind of uh, is a helpful little thing. So if you have the DMG, which you can get, uh, you can find online, it's pretty much everywhere. There's always a free version for it. I think even D&D Beyond, if you sign up for a free account, gives you the DMG Automatically. Players Handbook for free. Yeah, and I think they give you one adventuring model. model. Yeah, and one of, yeah. Also, so we're not sponsored by D&D Beyond. We are not. So. We, we are not sponsored Yet. by anything uh, right now. So uh, shout out D&D Beyond, sponsor us. Um, but if, Pepsi too. If you I'm, go, still, I'm still... You, God, you're a Pepsi fan. Yeah. Um, on page 16 to 17 of your DMG, you can kind of get a general idea of what I was talking about with sizes for different things. So like a village on uh, page 16. So you're going to be like, oh, up to 1,000 people for the population. They kind of give you... Um, what the government type is, defenses, commerce, you know, there's probably a trading post there. And all of those sorts of things are in the DMG. They give you everything from a village to a town to a city. And they even will let you have random roll tables, which eventually we will get to as a way to show you, you don't have to be creative in the sense of like, spawning everything you don't want to name a village vanilla basically so (laughs) use the book but i figured for our our next little thing um especially knowing that it's a farming community farming communities especially in my experience living in the midwest um 
are always near other farming communities. So there's probably going to be another little town 20 miles away or something like that, a day's hike away. So, you know, in that same little area that we have, I might put, you know, 20 miles north, there's another town called Chocolat. Are we making a candy-based world? Because here's the thing. I'm here for it. We are making candy lane based. You started this with vanilla. So we are now chocolate. I didn't say I was creative. I didn't say I was creative. Excuse me. Yeah. So we've got our second farming town, right? And you know that it's probably going to be uh, same, you know, same thing. It's going to be a farming community. So you don't really need a farming building. Now it's up to you, the DM, to decide. Do you want this to be a similar size town? Do you want it to be a little bit bigger? And the main thing, or I guess a village technically under the DMG, because they're going to be less than a thousand people. And for that, think about what your overall uh, character hook is from your first your first village, right? Like in your experience, first village probably leads you somewhere else. Correct. So if the first village is like, hey, back in the inn that we mentioned, the bartender sent one of the other people, one of the other employees to go get ale from the town to the north he hasn't been seen in two days he's supposed to have been back a day ago well now you got to go to this other town so we'll just say it's probably a similar sized town but they might be farming i would assume a little bit larger or i think i know what exactly what you were going to say is that it's it's going to be a little bit more of a different type of community where they they're farming as well but maybe crops that don't grow in that one region are growing up north a little bit maybe it's closer for instance to the sea right? You have almost a seaport type of town. So now we know that that's a great way to do it. It's like, say, there's a lake or a body of water. You don't have to identify. We're just going to say there's a body of water close to this next town, and that lets them grow barley in higher quantities, right? So now you know. Look at you using your knowledge of the real world about how this guy. When art imitates life, everybody. I'm slightly terrified. you're hearing this so you know that too late. you know that they're gonna we're not gonna have to worry about the farm the actual farming but knowing that this guy was sent up there for brew supplies they probably have some sort of brewery up there so you can probably say oh let's get our our handy dandy you know d6 back out and say mm, how many buildings are we gonna have in this one seven seven we are yeah so remember that is a 1d6 plus one 1d6 plus one so we're gonna have seven buildings so we know at least one of those is gonna be a brewery and what did we learn from last time at least typically unless you want this to be part of your campaign you're probably going to have a blacksmith so that's a second building right there you're gonna have an inn that's your third building you're going to have a general store that's a fourth building so you've already just with doing no work at all have filled half the building slots of your randomly gem- generated village. Yeah. And you don't really have to think too hard about the rest of it because you can say, ah, you know, there's probably another town hall there. Someone's running this this slightly larger city, right? And now that you've got a brewery, an inn with slash tavern, you know, you got a blacksmith, what other sorts of things might be useful near a body of water? Uh, I would assume some type of fishing right? type of so, uh, import or import-export. They would be taking in mm-hmm. some type of uh, something that they could export out. Right. So there's a probably not a port. water. Yeah. There's probably a port. And that port can be anything you want. That port can simply be fishing. Mm-hmm. That port can be – it's a trade. It's just a really big body of water. It's a big lake. It's a river. It's a whatever. And this is where the goods from these two little villages get shipped out. That's a fifth building right there. And you've got – Basically, two other buildings that you can make whatever. You can have a restaurant. You can have a barber shop or something like that. Um, I always think more unique. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you want to go, if you're, uh, you know, let's face it, if, depending on your fantasy setting and how you're going to do things, mm-hmm. you could make it a, a more of a brothel if you wanted mm-hmm. to, right? right? Again, we're not <laughs> ripping on sex workers or anything like that. Right. No, right. absolutely. All power to, to, everyone. to everyone. Absolutely. And I think what's very important is spicing up your fantasy world right adding things in that you didn't have in the first town Mm -hmm. into this town and i think adding adding a brothel is actually a great example of that it is yeah absolutely i think it is a good idea to add to have a you know a a madame that runs that establishment there's a character that you've already maybe a lore or story that leads Mm -hmm. to them right maybe they have information already Mm -hmm. you're thinking bigger picture they have information on higher government corrupt officials 
you can trace lines and build your fantasy setting around right. that mm-hmm. if you want your fantasy setting to focus on that. If you don't, you can lean it towards a different route. Maybe there's a corrupt port side, do- uh, a dock master of sort, right? He runs that side, but he's taking bribes. He's taking things. Right. Again, and, there's... And even if you want it to be a little bit more militant, you can say there's a mercenary company headquarters right there, a small headquarters, like there's a little outpost. But also something that you can think about is even in your fantasy realm, whether it's high magic, low magic, which we'll discuss in a later episode. Um, But for now, how do people communicate? Through mail, right? So there's probably going to be a mail service. If this is a larger town that's near a body of water, since that's an easy way to transport a lot of mail, a lot of goods. So I would say there's probably, in addition to the brothel, a mail, like a mail system, a post service there. So that's probably the regional post office that all these other, whenever we decide what exactly this area is going to look like, these little towns, villages, hamlets all send their mail here and it gets delivered out. And yeah. that's and now you've got seven businesses. You only had to make three other ones and tons of plot hooks can do that. I mean, you look at Assassin's Creed, how much stuff in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood uh, did they relate to the brothel, the courtesans? They did. Like you can literally use them as such as infiltrators in different noble noble circles. They can be listening for you at bar. I mean, there's so many things that you can do with these sorts of things that lend to both a creative campaign, but also make your players feel like the world is alive. Yes. It's, it's taking what you know as a DM or taking what your players want to see established. Yes, add the fantasy setting, but by basing it off things like, again, great a mention there of the Assassin's Creed. For instance, you saw so much of that world building based around the courtesans, right? Based around how they ran that city, based around certain type of structures within that that community and things like that. And then being able to build around that and then move it onward is absolutely amazing. I always look forward to, especially those uh, Assassin's Creed games. I haven't played in a while. Assassin's Creed 3 was my last one. Mm -hmm. I still loved it. And that was the, the Native American setting. And I loved it because it let you take what is out there already and then move it directly in to your fantasy setting. And I, I just, I, I, I pulled a lot into that in, uh, into my campaign setting. Right. That's what I did. I pulled that stuff into it and into this fantasy setting that of vanilla and chocolat. Right. Are we pronouncing it? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We've got a very Candyland. We're going to keep this train going. everyone. But, and I think this right here, so you've got, two villages you've got two of them right here you've got chocolate vanilla 20 miles apart that's an easy walk in a day for a party that basically a days of walk for a party you don't have to worry about travel you would have we can talk about random encounters and all that stuff later you don't really have to worry about it and you've got enough businesses with enough plot hooks to really keep your players going for multiple sessions I would depending think, uh, on how long your sessions are levels like one think. through five are maybe mm-hmm. low end four i yeah, would say maybe low one end through four. five one through four yeah, probably depending. okay yeah. through that and you know we'll go through leveling up and all that at a later session but I think you really can with a brewery. I mean, you've got so many things. You've got rival breweries trying to push people out, like a big corporation. You want to do some anti-capitalism you know, capitalism things? Boom, done there. You've got you know, the blacksmith in this town went missing, and the other blacksmith in vanilla can't make up all the difference. Now you've got a problem with wagons falling apart, doors falling off hinges, swords for the town guard are no longer being maintained. You've got a lot of issues that you, a creative DM, or even just someone with a little bit of a sadistic mentality can <laughs> twist. You know, the brothel, like we said from uh, Assassin's Creed is a great one. I mean, how many ancient, uh, you know, kind of tropes are there about ports and, you know, things? I mean, you could look at Pirates of the Caribbean. Everything happens at a port. What we've actually already also esta- started establishing, and we've been hinting around it as well, guilds Mm -hmm. guilds are starting to become a factor here maybe the blacksmithing guild is a little bit to the north of uh vanilla right it's a little bit Mm -hmm. north but it's not a big guild but it may be a smaller guild. i'm going to put this out there as an option because that is actually a great idea for a campaign and i think maybe this could be our little overarching little campaign arc here is that the vanilla blacksmith is outside the guild that's why he's working in a small town of less than 100 people instead of this village up at Chocolat that might need a second blacksmith, but he's not licensed by the guild, and the guild will push him out if he tries to move up there. And now your job is to— And there's a plot a, hook. 
intermediary, either, you know, whatever it is, but you've got a plot hook now. You can Start write small, whole, build big. Exactly. Yep. And you work that in. So now you know you've got a body of water to work with. I'm going to say, why, you know what, let's put, a, let's put it to the dice. Let's put it to the dice. What you, are we rolling in? Tell me why. You, you grab a, your D20 over there, Done. your beautiful D20. Oh, and how about we just say, and this is just me spitballing, it's not related anything to the DMG, one to five, it's going to be a river. A five to ten, it's going to be a lake. Anything over, it's going to be a sea. All right, let's see what we get. We rolled a six. A six, so we got a lake. We did so we're going to basically yep. say this is just a big lake. So I want you to imagine lakes in the country that you are, whether you're in Canada, the Great, you know, Great Lakes, anything like that. Like you know, if you're in Michigan, obviously it's right next to us. Uh, you know, there are a lot of lakes in you know, really anywhere, Lake Victoria. I mean, you can make it massive if you want to. It really depends on how much you want water to revolve in campaign. I think a great idea is naming our lake. And I think I have a great name for the I'm lake. I'm excited to hear it. Lake Shukar. Like sugar. Pretty sure Sukar lake is also very Shukar. similar to uh, the uh, term in Arabic. So it kind of works. <laughs> Since we are it, it is beautiful. focusing around that, again, pulling from real world mm -hmm. into your fantasy setting. Right. And you see now how we've used the fact that we really didn't spitball any creative name. We just did vanilla. And then I made a bit about it being chocolate. And now we got sugar. And now you've already created a fantasy realm. You it's already, it theme. has its hints. You yeah. have a theme for your fantasy realm. And you don't have to make, and I want to um, encourage all my newer DMs. Because I think this is something I fell into is I created a theme and I tried too hard to make every single Thing about the setting fit the theme like with this if i was a new dm taking this i'd be like the trees have to be made of candy and you don't have to have it no. you can literally have this be the baron of this area really just loves sweets and renamed all the towns yeah renamed the lake like renamed all that stuff. and by doing by already by what you said you've already established another finger right exactly. this is someone that your players can interact with mm -hmm. if they work their way up through the setting mm -hmm. so by building this setting already done why did he name things up maybe he had a daughter who uh you know loved sweets so much that she passed away at a younger mm -hmm. age or maybe his daughter rebelled against him and in well, honor to and, honor her and even something if you don't need a massive campaign hook like that and you want to draw a little empathy from the players because you know maybe the citizens don't like being known as the citizen from vanilla you know like maybe they don't like that but his daughter had diabetes and that's a very real way to bring real life, especially if you have a player that has that and struggles with that. It's, it can be a great way to address an issue, which again, later campaign, later topics for the thing, but it can be a great way. So you don't have to make a theme and make it be, for those of you who have watched, watched Dimension 20, you don't have to make it be a crown of candy where you're, you know, Brandley Mulligan makes everything candy canes and you know sugar i'm about to actually start that by the way it's great. I, I, it's I can't wait to start i hear it's one of the best seasons of it's it it's top down fantastic i actually enjoy fantasy high i just mm -hmm. finished fantasy high and i, I absolutely love loved it, it. Yeah. Love it. yeah but so that's what i want to encourage everybody for these first the first two bits we're going to get a little bit more into next time is going to be a little bit more government structure we're going to talk start talking about a little bit more overarching things but for now those two towns you can take that and run with it from level one to five and have a great time yeah, and then we can start talking about other things as well, like uh, pushing into it. Speaking of other things, I do think it is time for final thoughts here today, Austin. What are we thinking here? Let's see. I had to pick a subject. Eeny, meeny, miny. Mo. Ah, I, I, I won't blame you if myself. you leave. I won't blame if you leave. <laughs> well, we just lost five followers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about we do strongest uh, common magic item? That's always a good one. You have a, a strongest yeah. common magic item. And just item? to give everyone a little context, uh, so in D&D, for those of you who are a little bit no, uh, newer to the system, they rate magic items by strength via common, uncommon, rare, very rare, and legendary. So common is basically stuff, might be a knickknack thrown around. They're usually worth, if my memory serves me correctly, less than like 20 gold, which in D&D terms is, is pretty a pretty inconsequential amount uh, of, of gold for like an adventurer. Um, but m the one that I selected is actually from cr a critical role source book, a call of the nether deep. Uh, and it is a medal of wit. So what a medal of wit does is you can press the medal to your temple as an action. 
and doing so gives you advantage on intelligence checks and intelligence saving throws for one hour. Once you use it, it can't be used again. It becomes just a regular metal. And I think the reason I would say this is the strongest magic item is that investigation checks in D&D are one of your most used checks. It's like investigation, stealth, perception, athletics are typically your big mainstays. And having advantage in a crucial dungeon, in a crucial house, in a crucial cult hideout can be mean all the difference between finding lore that saves that favorite NPC of yours or lets them die. But also notice that it says saving throws. So as a skilled player and me being a metagamer uh, super heavily, if I know I'm gonna go fight like a mind flayer or something that is going to attack intelligence saves, I'm 100% gonna activate this and have advantage because, and again, I'm a nerd, the math on advantage adds out to like a plus five bonus. Basically. You get a chance, yeah. You basically get the equivalent of having a plus five extra on the roll. So it really does, I think, solve a lot of problems because as we'll talk about later, intelligence is a dump stat for most D&D characters. Most, unless so you're having, a wizard. <laughs> having advantage is insanely strong for a common magic item that's worth less than 20 gold. So, what are your thoughts you went, on my on, on my, my I item? I approve of what you went with. You went more battle based. Yeah, I went battle based. I am going more outside of combat. Okay. And I think you're gonna love this one. Okay. Because it's I think it's a very not as well thought about magic item. The alchemy jug. Ah, uh, yeah. Enjoy the alchemy jug. So, quick little. Uh, so, uh, I think this is a common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a common magic yeah. item, but I believe it is in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's like yeah, right it's away. an OG. Yeah, it's the OG. So, for those of you that don't know, Ceramic Jug appears to be able to hold a gallon of liquid and weighs 12 pounds, whether full or empty. Doesn't weigh much already, right? It's already taking away that weight factor, especially if you use encumbrance right. into your uh, D&D setting. Those of you that don't know encumbrance, it's basically just you being weighed down. Yeah, imagine if any of you played Skyrim or any sort of other game that has an inventory system and you're like, oh, I can't run because I'm over encumbered. That's what's, encumbrance. What's great about the alchemy jug, you can use an action, name one liquid from the table below. I'll read off the table here shortly enough. To cause the jug to produce the chosen liquid. After, you can uncork the jug and as an action, pour the liquid out up to two gallons per minute. Maximum amount of liquid the jug can produce depends on the liquid once you, uh, it's named. So, some of the items, uh, some of the things that you can go with. Acid, eight ounces. Basic poison, half an ounce. Beer, four gallons. Honey, one gallon. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. <laughs> two gallons worth of mayonnaise. Oil is a quart. Vinegar is two gallons. Water, fresh water. This is something that is not addressed enough at some D&D tables. And again, depending on how you want to run your setting, all power to you. However, technically, I think according to the DMG, your players need some sort of liquid amount in one day, especially if you're playing some certain classes nowadays that have to be submerged in a certain amount of water for one hour a day. But there's also water, salt water, 12 gallons of salt water and wine a gallon. Basically, there's already things of utilization to use in that jug that's common magic item. You could, for instance, coat your arrows in poison. Mm-hmm. Boom, your DM can let you roll some type of check to allow, allow that right. to happen. You could bribe the town guard with his favorite type of wine. Maybe it's more common wine, but a wine nonetheless. You could take advantage of it because it takes the setting. For instance, it takes that opportunity to go, hey, I'm gonna go get the town guard drunk, and then what I'm gonna do is have them roll with disadvantage checks. Right. They get a little drunk, what do they end up doing? Their charisma checks probably are gonna go down. Mm-hmm. The DM will say, yeah, they're gonna roll with disadvantage. What do you mm-hmm. think, Austin? Yeah, I actually, so I love the alchemy jug. Uh, it was one of the considerate ones that I considered for it. Um, and I think it really kind of goes to our talk earlier about rule of cool versus rules lawyering. My item very much more rules lawyery, yours a little more rule of cool. Because cool. I think, and you mentioned it very cool. briefly. He's boring. The, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing in that item that says you can't create a specific type of beer, a specific type of wine, a specific type of this, that, and the other. I know with poisons, it gets a little, you know, finicky. It's probably a basic poison, basic acid. But think about acid. You can melt locks with acid. Like, there are so many creative uses for the alchemy jug, and it doesn't take up a lot of weight, doesn't take up a lot of space. 
it really solves a lot of your issues. And I know you were mentioning races that need to be submerged. Like if you have a grung in your party, you now solve the saltwater issue as long as you have this with you. It really does, especially for your more dungeon crawly, where you're like, I'm in the Underdark. We're out of rations and water. We can't really forage that easily. At least you've got a steady supply of water that there's one less thing the party needs to worry about. It's It really is a great I love your item too. Do not get me wrong. It's, it's as you talked about. You literally talked about it. Being able to roll with advantage on anything at the table is already proving your, your odds are working in your favor. You are taking the higher of two rolls and... Lord forbid if that if your DM allows you a triple advantage type of uh, scenario. Mind you, advantage doesn't stack for those new players out there. Unless you have elven accuracy. Okay, but that's such annoying elven <laughs> bullshit. All right, I want to be very specific. Oh, look at me, I'm an elf. Ooh, look at me, I'm a. What is it? What's the one class? The the art the uh, ranger. Ranger, but uh, specifically the uh, magical archer. Oh, are you talking about are you talking about the fighter subclass? Yeah, archer? it's a fighter subclass. Yeah, oh, I yeah, can't remember. Fire, yeah. Oh, uh, arcane archer. Arcane archer. Those ones are badass. Lord forbid if you combine that with any type of elven accuracy and you're an elf. Oh my god, you want to talk about game breaking mechanics? Mm. I have a player at the table. He's literally already he's he is an archer, right? He's a, technically a samurai is what he went for his class, but he's already got a plus five in his damn dexterity. Right. He's literally just already broken. Yeah. <laughs> But he's got a, an ability there that lets him roll max damage already. It just drives me insane. Right. But so that and that's really, I think, both of the uh, ide ideas on this is that we, for common magic items, can have something that does something for the party, like yours. The alchemy jug does something for the party. You can have something for your specific, and both of them are great options. And they're both uber cheap, and they're both things that the party could find. From one to from one to five, between doing things in vanilla and chocolate, fantastic things, fantastic ideas, great things for you to bring to your table. Dare I say? I think that's this uh, it for this episode of Dungeons and Brews. Austin, any final uh, final words? Thank you for being part of the pod, part of the brew. <laughs>